You're listening to Code Red with Secure America Now, the largest national security grassroots army. Hi, I am Alan Roth, president of Secure America Now and host of the Code Red podcast. Our special guest today is Elon Berman, senior vice president of the American Foreign Policy Council and author of Tehran Rising and many publications about Iran and the Middle East. Ilan, as we speak, Iranians are voting for a new president. In terms of Iranian foreign and domestic policy, will it make a difference who gets elected? So thanks, Alan, and, and obviously wonderful to be here. Um, so I think that's really the central question. Um, my answer would be as follows. It matters a lot and it matters not at all. It matters a lot because uh, the, uh, it really gives, uh, the results of the election are gonna give us a sense of the tenor of what's happening within the country and sort of what the ideological currents are. It matters not at all because the Iranian president is not the one that actually makes all the decisions. Uh, what you have in Iran is this interesting two-tier system uh, in which the clerical institutions, the religious institutions overlay the Republican ones. And so the office of the president is somewhat important, but much more important is the office of the Supreme Leader. Uh, the Supreme Leader is 82 years old. His name is Ali Khamenei. He is uh, in charge of everything. And he is the one that sets the pace for both domestic and foreign policy. So uh, if, if Iran does something internationally, uh, including, for example, rejoining the trying to rejoin the, the 2015 nuclear deal uh, with the West, uh, you can be sure that it's because the supreme leader has given its blessing. So the best way to think about the Iranian presidency is that the president is the executor of the will of the unelected clerics. In Iran, uh, the current president or the president who's going to be replaced seem to put a very, let us say, a friendly face on Iran, especially in relation to his predecessor. And what I mean by friendly was that uh, he also seemed to want to engage with the Western world. Uh, do you expect that we will have a continuation of an outreach to engage with the Western world or not? Well, I think that depends a lot on what the Supreme Leader wants. Uh, an interesting feature of this current round of elections uh, is the sort of the degree to which the regime has abandoned all pretenses of plurality. It's, I, I don't think it's correct to talk about Iran's elections as elections. Uh, they're much more selections. Uh, in the run-up to this latest contest, the one that, that Iranians are voting uh, in today, you had something like 600 potential candidates for the Iranian presidency. And a clerical institution called the Guardian Council eliminated all but seven of them. And subsequently, three of the seven have dropped out. So what you essentially have is a four-man horse race where the runaway favorite is a guy that the Supreme Leader approves of. He's a regime hardliner. Uh, he is uh, very much a reflection of the ideological consolidation of the regime. That doesn't mean he's not going to talk to the West. Uh, but the facade that what you actually have within Iran is this plurality of choices, that there's a 
uh, ideological contest between reformists and hardliners. Increasingly, I, I think you know the veil has been pulled back. Uh, really, what we're talking about is a consolidated ideological regime. Uh, the regime will engage with the West if the Supreme Leader deems it a good idea for economic or political purposes to engage with the West. Uh, but let's not have any pretenses that the Iranians are turning over uh, moderately. Do you uh, feel that the Iran nuclear deal, which was negotiated with the Obama administration, in which the current Biden administration has said that it wants to re-engage with Iran, and our European allies also seem to be on board about uh, reconnecting with that deal, which the Trump administration actually pulled the United States out of. Do you think that, that the Iran nuclear deal has any benefits for the United States? And does it have benefits for Iran? What is your view of the nuclear deal? Well, it certainly has benefits for Iran. Uh, the best way to think about this is that in terms of direct and indirect sanctions relief, the original deal, when it was concluded in 2015, conveyed to Iran something like uh, a quarter of its annual budget uh, in terms of funds that were previously escrowed in foreign accounts that had been freed, right? This is a huge economic windfall for the Iranian regime. And you have to understand that in order to understand just how effective the Trump administration's maximum pressure policy was. Maximum pressure really, and uh, I think it's incorrect. I, I know sort of it, it's uh, very fashionable in the media to talk about maximum pressure as a failure. I think it's much more accurate to talk about maximum pressure as a work in progress because maximum pressure had really only been laid on uh, in the last year and a half of the Trump administration. And it was already having tremendous effects. Uh, we had essentially cratered the Iranian national currency. We had drawn down Iran's ability to export uh, oil, which is its principal export commodity by something like 90%, right? We were making a real impact. We're taking a bite out of the Iranian economy. Um, and the, that's why the Iranians, you know, no matter what they say publicly, the Iranians are very, very eager to rejoin that original deal. Uh, and so, you know, for, for the regime, for a regime that's increasingly rickety, for a regime that's facing domestic protests uh, about, uh, you know, sort of uh, failure to thrive internally, uh, it's a godsend that the Biden administration is really seems hellbent on rejoining this agreement. And so what I think you're going to see certainly is the, the Iranians are trying to build leverage. They're trying to talk tough. They're doing all sorts of uh, very troublesome thing, re things regionally, but it's all in the service of a larger strategy. They're trying to rebuild leverage vis-a-vis -vis the United States as part of their re-entry into this agreement. They want to have a more uh, sort of a better, a more preferential position uh, and uh, you know, have the Biden administration come away with a political win, but the real political win is going to be Iranian. Are there any practical benefits for the United States rejoining this deal? So, you know, uh, advisedly, I'm a, I'm a skeptic. I was a skeptic of the 2015 deal. I'm a skeptic uh, even more so of what the Biden administration is trying to do now uh, for a very simple reason. First of all, uh, the original deal, I thought, conferred uh, an unacceptable amount of economic leverage to the Iranians. Uh, it, it was uh, sort of too uh, charitable by half. Uh, and it was too narrow because it talked about the Iran nuclear program, but it didn't talk about Iran's regional troublemaking and uh, you know, support for proxies and support for terrorism. And all of those things 
quite frankly, are you know cardinal national security interests for the United States, and we simply took them out of the scope of work. The current deal that the Biden administration uh, is trying to revive is even worse because now the 2015 nuclear deal is more than half expired. We're talking about limitations on Iran's nuclear program that are only going to last for just a handful of years, uh, maybe not even until the end of uh, President Biden's term. And uh, what we have in response is an administration that, while it talks a good game about not lifting sanctions uh, until the Iranians come back into compliance, in practical effect, those sanctions are being lifted already because you're seeing a White House that is increasingly hands-off. They're not enforcing existing sanctions. So even what you have now is the optimal situation for Iran. Uh, a deal that's mostly expired that they that even if they sign on to, they won't need to adhere to for just uh, for more than just a couple of years. And in the meantime, even before they sign on as sweeteners, as confidence building measures, the Biden administration is already walking away from enforcement of the very things that are bothering the Iranians. In pursuing the Iran nuclear deal, both the United States and Europe are sending a message, and I'm curious um, what you think um, in terms of the broader picture in the Middle East, that is this also a move back to making Iran the central uh, country that, uh, that American bases its foreign policy on? And what type of an impact does this have on the Sunni countries that were making great strides towards making peace with Israel in the region? Well, and they still are, right? Uh, the, what's interesting to me is, is the degree to which the momentum of uh, what we now know as the Abraham Accords, these normalization pacts between uh, the Persian Gulf states uh, and Israel is continuing apace uh, on a government to government level and on a private sector level, even though the Biden administration seems very reluctant to uh, endorse any part of this process. Uh, and, and that's a really profound shift. Uh, I mean, let's remember uh, half a decade ago, a little bit more, when the original uh, nuclear deal with Iran was being negotiated, uh, the regional complexion was very different. You didn't have these normalization accords. You didn't have, you had some quiet meeting of the minds between Israel and uh, the Gulf Arab states about the common threat that they share from Iran. But what you've seen over the last half decade has been really a maturing of that understanding and an expanding of, uh, of that understanding. So their relations are not just about Iran anymore. They're about economics, they're about culture, they're about business, they're about politics. And so the region that the Biden administration is encountering is profoundly different from the one that the Obama administration was navigating when it decided to conclude the deal. The problem that we have is that the formula that the Biden administration has uh, for dealing with Iran in this new context is looks really outdated because it's essentially the same formula that the Obama administration had back before all of these normalization accords, before the new reality in the region. You, uh, you recently wrote an article, co-wrote an article in National Interest, a new era for Iran's ambitions in the Western Hemisphere. 
Uh, I want you to explain what you mean by that, but before you do that, I also want to link this question to Iran played a very active role financially in the recent um, shooting war between Hamas and Israel. Is Iran getting more aggressive? Is in fact uh, the negotiations over the Iran nuclear deal taking place at a time when Iran seems to be pushing the envelope and pushing its interests, which are not in line with American interests? No, exactly right. And, and it, it's all part of that uh, strategy of building leverage. Uh, the Iranians, uh, the Iranian strategy for a long time has been to look to regional proxies, whether it's in the Middle East uh, or beyond, and to use them uh, as sort of asymmetric tools by which they can uh, skirt sanctions, by which they can advance their uh, geopolitical interests. And you see that uh, most directly uh, in places like Iraq, where Iran holds sway over Shiite militias, in places like Yemen, where Iran is bankrolling the Houthi rebels, but also uh, in Lebanon with Hezbollah and in the Palestinian territories uh, with Hamas. Um, and that indirect strategy is, has been enormously effective for the Iranians. It's allowed the Iranians to uh, really become a power broker in regional affairs without putting any of its own skin in the game, so to speak. Um, and that's what's happening now. Uh, and I, but I think that that ratcheting up of the tension, that uh, you know, Iranian pressure on these different proxies to be more activist has everything to do with the renewed nuclear negotiations. Iran is trying to build leverage vis-a-vis -vis the West, vis-a-vis -vis the Biden administration and uh, America's European partners to show that it can ratchet up the tension. But if the West plays nice with Iran and gives Iran concessions, they can dial it back down. And the uh, sort of the article you mentioned is sort of an extension of that, I think. Uh, there, there's two things here that, that I think are worth flagging. Um, my co-author and I wrote about this uh, maritime voyage that these two Iranian warships were taking, um, which at the time it looked like they were heading towards Latin America. Uh, significant for two reasons. First of all, that Iran has built naval capabilities robust enough that they can actually begin to field a blue water Navy because Iran has tried to build these military capabilities for a long time, but they've been constrained uh, by sanctions. And so what you saw over the last couple of years is that maximum pressure was very effective in uh, drawing down Iran's uh, foreign exchange reserves, uh, destabilizing the Iranian economy, but the regime has consistently preferred guns over butter. And so uh, if pennies had to be pinched, it was on domestic prosperity, it wasn't on military modernization. And the end result of that is that Iran is an increasingly capable military adversary. Uh, Iran is not just a regional power in the Middle East, they're making a play to be a global power and to be able to project power globally. And the logical destination for those warships uh, was and continues to be uh, Latin America, because in Latin America over the last decade and a half, the Iranians have had enormous success in building partnerships with fellow anti-American regimes. Uh, back in the day with uh, the regime of Evo Morales in Bolivia, with the regime of Cristina Kirchner in Argentina, with uh, the regime of Hugo Chavez in Venezuela, and the Venezuelan prong of this, uh, which was sort of the, the con conventional wisdom was that the warships were heading for Venezuela, it, that prong continues. The current president of Venezuela, Nicolas Maduro, 
uh, is presiding over this slow motion implosion of his government and his economy. And he's become increasingly reliant on foreign partners, uh, Iran, very prominent among them. Uh, so the Iranians have been supplying Venezuela with oil in exchange for uh, for gold from Venezuela's hard currency, uh, Venezuela's uh, reserves, uh, but increasingly using Venezuela's weakness as a way to widen their footprint in Latin America. And so what you see is this pattern of penetration that Iran has been carrying out in Latin America for the better part of two decades that's increasingly moving into the realms of military cooperation and an operational presence in the Western Hemisphere. And frankly, that should be very worrying for American policy planners. And it's certainly uh, something to watch. Do you get any indication that American policy planners actually fully appreciate the threats that are coming from Iran uh, on, from the South? No, uh, absolutely not. And, and in fact, uh, we, because of the priorities of our Iran policy, the focus on nuclear negotiations, the focus on getting to yes with Iran on one aspect of the Iranian threat, we're actually disincentivized from digging deeper uh, with regard to what Iran is doing spatially. Because if we start paying too much attention to Iran in the Western Hemisphere, Iran in Africa, uh, you know, Iranian proxy activity uh, in the Middle East, in the greater Middle East, uh, it's going to be harder for the administration to sell the idea that it is a net benefit for the United States to re-enter this mostly expired agreement with Iran. Uh, and, and look, I, I, I fully understand the motivations on the part of the Biden administration. Personnel is policy. And it bears noting that uh, a vast number of the people who are involved in the current negotiations with Iran, the National Security Advisor, uh, Jake Sullivan, uh, the Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, the current uh, Special Envoy for Iran, Rob Malley, uh, and others, uh, they were the ones that concluded the first deal the first time around. So it only makes sense that they would be still be stakeholders in that original agreement and want to see it revived. But the regional context is very different, and the sort of the the downside risks are actually very high because as we drill down and try to get to yes with Iran on one aspect of their threatening behavior, we're ignoring all these other very disturbing signs that Iran is moving around in our hemisphere and is moving around uh, in contravention to our interests and to the interests of our allies. Do you have any indications of the impact on Iranian relations, not just with the United States, but um, as we all know, uh, Israel's former prime minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, actually uh, led the charge against the Iranian uh, nuclear deal. And, um, and on his way out just earlier this, this week, when there was a change of governments in Israel, he once again warned the world and said that he would continue to campaign against Iran because of the threat that opposes to the, both the West, the United States, and especially to the state of Israel. Um, do you think that the recent change in Israel's government will have any sort of an impact on Israel's stance 
on Iran? Not at all. Uh, and in fact, uh, we sort of we see indications of this already. Uh, the current prime minister, Naftali Bennett, when he gave his uh, inaugural address, his acceptance address on the floor of the Knesset uh, on Sunday the 13th, uh, he actually said as much. He said that what you can expect from his government, which is frankly very, very different from Netanyahu's government in terms of composition, in terms of their domestic focus, but on foreign affairs, and in particular on Iran, you're going to see much more continuity than change. Uh, and, and this, I think, reflects the center line of Israeli politics, which, uh, frankly, a lot of American politicians don't adequately appreciate. The center line of Israeli politics, whether you are a liberal or a conservative, is that Iran poses an existential threat to the survival of the state of Israel. And it's why you get this tremendous amount of commonality, no matter what party the prime minister is from and sort of what their domestic priorities are. In the context of Israeli security, Iran looms really large, and there's a lot more agreement than disagreement over how to deal with it. You have given us um, a, a very good overview of the threats coming from Iran, and I'd like to uh, switch for a moment to another area of expertise that you have, which is Russia. Uh, as we speak uh, yesterday, I believe it was day before, uh, President Biden had his first summit with President Putin of Russia. Uh, do you have any read out of that summit? Was there anything accomplished? Uh, what, uh, what's the fallout from the summit, if any? Right. Well, no, and, and this summit was it was a really high stakes affair for a couple of reasons. First of all, because it's necessary to understand, I think, where we are in the U.S.-Russian relationship currently to understand sort of what was possible to be done during the summit and frankly, what wasn't done during the summit. So the fundamental problem we have with Russia is that we have had longstanding disagreements over uh, strategic disagreements over things like arms control, over things like NATO expansion, over things like the independence of countries in Eastern Europe. These are big ticket items. These are huge disagreements that we're not going to simply paper over with the Russians. But historically, uh, certainly in the post-Cold War era, there have been areas of tactical cooperation that we've managed to achieve. Things like the Russians helping us on space launch, things like uh, at least some sort of commonality on counterterrorism efforts uh, against uh, militants in the Middle East. You know, and, and the list goes on. But what you've seen over the last half decade has been that the areas of tactical cooperation have constricted and the areas of strategic disagreement have actually expanded. And so what we're left with is an overwhelmingly negative agenda uh, between the two countries. Uh, they don't agree on very much at all. They see each other in the worst possible light. And so in, in that context, the summit was important because it's obviously better to talk than not to talk and to let these disagreements fester. But the fundamental question is what was discussed at the summit? Because if, if nothing of substance was discussed, then these talks really don't, you know, don't, don't provide any improvement. Um, and here, the Biden administration, I, I think, came in with a very sort of amorphous agenda. President Biden initially had talked, uh, talked up the summit saying he was going to use it as an opportunity to reset relations with Russia. Nothing like that happened. Um, they, you know, he flagged 
for Vladimir Putin, a number of issues that are that are uh, admittedly very important. Uh, uh, human rights in Russia, medium freedom within Russia, uh, Russia's campaign of uh, cyber hacking against uh, the U.S. private sector. All of this is crucial. But the missing piece of the puzzle is, you know, as, as someone who was watching this closely, the missing piece of the puzzle was that Biden didn't really do a good job of articulating to the Russians that these are red lines and concrete things were going to happen as a result. Uh, there was some sort of general discussion about, you know, uh, sectors of the U.S. economy being off limits for, cy uh, for cyber hacking and things like that. But there wasn't really a good uh, you know, notice that was given to the Russians that they could expect concrete consequences from the United States if they didn't change their behavior. And so, so I think what you get out of the summit is less than the sum of its parts. The proper issues were raised, at least some of them, but whether or not the Russian behavior changes, uh, I think we'll have to wait and see. Uh, I certainly didn't get the impression that Vladimir Putin was scared straight. Uh, in, uh, as we come to the end of this conversation. I want to thank you. I also um, want to ask you if you know, uh, I saw somewhere doing research uh, for this conversation that uh, the lead candidate in the Iranian elections for president, I think his name is Raisi, that he actually is officially blacklisted by the United States, meaning that I suppose it means that he couldn't travel here without getting arrested. Um, is that true? So that's a really interesting question. And actually the sort of the personality of Raisi himself is very interesting for two reasons. One is, is the reason you mentioned, because Raisi has been found to have been involved in uh, you know, sort of very significant human rights uh, abuses within Iran uh, in the 1990s. Um, and as a result, he's been censured by the U.S. government. Uh, my sense is that there's probably some leeway there in terms of executive orders that uh, sort of, you know, provide a dispensation if he's actually elected uh, Iran's president, uh, sort of to allow uh, something resembling the smooth flow of, of diplomatic relations. Uh, but I'm not sure on that score. But the other thing, uh, in, as an Iran watcher, as somebody who's watching the trajectory of their politics, that's very interesting to me is the fact that if Raisi is elected and, and sort of the odds makers are, I, I think, unanimous that he, he's, he's uh, predominantly the odds on favorite to become the Iranian president, that may not actually be his most important post because you have another dynamic that's happening at the same time. The Iranian Supreme Leader, Ali Khamenei, is 82 years old, he suffers from a number of ailments, uh, he is going to pass from the political scene, probably sooner rather than later. And so for years, we've been talking about this idea that, you know, who's gonna be the next Supreme Leader of Iran? Who's gonna be the next real power behind the throne in Iran? Uh, and there hasn't been a clear answer, but Raisi may be the guy. Raisi is the only one of the uh, approved Iranian presidential candidates who's a cleric, who's not a, uh, technocrat or a policymaker. He's a cleric, uh, so he has the religious credentials to do that. He's also the uh, sort of uh, the uh, very clear favorite of the Supreme Leader himself, right? They're ideologically compatible. He's a hardliner. So what you may actually be seeing in sort of is the early stages of a grooming experiment in which Raisi is elevated to the Iranian presidency as a prelude to actually becoming the real power in Iran when Khamenei passes from the scene. Very interesting. Well, 
thank you, Elon, for sharing your expertise with us. It's been um, very informative. And uh, I look forward sometime in the future to, um, to re-engaging, having you on as guests. Thank you very much. Oh, thank you, Alan. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Code Red Podcast. Be sure to click subscribe to stay up to date and be the first to hear about our future podcast. You can also find and subscribe to the Code Red Podcast on Podbean, Spotify, Google Play, and YouTube.